So we say it a lot here, and uh, tonight we, we get the chance uh, to celebrate Easter in June. Um, we say it all the time that, you know, yesterday and tomorrow will be no less Easter than the day that the, the calendar all aligns. So I want to welcome you tonight to uh, an Easter celebration. Um, if, you, if you start talking about Easter, okay, uh, there's, there's one thing that, that starts enraging Believers, okay? It's, it's when people say things like, Easter at the end of the day is really about this. If you want to start, you know, attacking Christendom, I've, I've never seen Christians get so angry, okay? Uh, when they hear uh, public, when they hear culture say, well, ultimately, uh, Christmas, or Christmas is about presents and Easter is about the Easter bunny. And, and so I, I started thinking about this whole, like, like journey of the Easter bunny in general. It's a really interesting phenomenon, isn't it? Listen, I, I want to show you some pictures right now that are definitely going to give you bad dreams, okay? Because this shows us that, that we can even take an Easter bunny and mess it up real bad, okay? This is going to mess you guys up, I, I promise. Check this out. Okay, here's some, here's some like... Could you imagine this on your fridge, you know? This gets better, okay? Check out some of these other bad bunny pictures, okay? Like, what in the world? (laughs) This is like a real picture. Someone thought that was a bunny, right? How about this? How about this last one? This is this is classic. Okay, this is the double the double combo. A little bit, a little bit less scary. The one on the right has like black eyes. Okay, um, listen, it, it shows it shows even culture, right? Like as as wrong as they are, of course that that Easter is about the the Easter Bunny. Um, they can even take the Easter Bunny and convolute it. We find ourselves enraged when people you know take our Fourth of July and mess it up. You know. Uh, come on, no, it, it's actually, uh, next slide, it's actually about this, right? A, a tomb that was once closed is, is, now, is now open. Um, uh, the one Christian holiday where, where all of a sudden we find ourselves a little bit more invigorated, a little bit more zealous, a little bit more passionate. Uh, but what I want to propose to you tonight is I'm not so sure that the majority of Christendom is very different. In other words, we would say that Easter is about an empty tomb. That's what comes out of our mouth. But my question for you is, the same question I've been asking myself, do I really believe that? Is it really about an empty tomb? Have I gotten to this place in my life where I am fully convinced that Easter every day before and every day after is about the truth that Jesus straight walked out of a tomb just like he said that he would? Or have we convoluted it? Have we learned to say the right things, to celebrate the right Christian holidays, to make our heart feel all warm and fuzzy on one particular day, but then the rest of the time it loses its meaning? Next slide, let me say it this way. The resurrection of Jesus means nothing or everything. That's it. So to you and to me, it either means nothing or it means everything. 
And if it means nothing to you, then that represents itself by your life. You live in the confines of the resurrection either being true or false. And then there's others of us that are like, no, no, you don't understand. If Jesus resurrected from the tomb, then game over on everything. It it means everything. It has implications, thousands of them every single second of every single day. We get a flat tire on the way here tonight, and you know what? I will raise you a flat tire with a resurrection. We're going through some distraughtness in a relationship. Okay, as as fragile or as hurtful as that may be, I will raise you a resurrection. We we see the the probability of of sickness. We watch our job being literally taken from us. And on and on and on. The implications, listen, the implications of the resurrection do not stop. Just at the moment that you've begun to think that you understand, next slide, the power of the resurrection, I'm telling you, you haven't even gotten there yet. Here's what Paul says. That I may know him and the power of his what? Come on. If that may be what I know him at, like if I may know him, the person of Christ, And the power, the sheer, unbelievable, deep power of his resurrection. And they share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I'm telling you here tonight, we're beginning a five-week journey through 1 Corinthians 15, and it is all about the implications of the resurrection. Listen, when we started 1 Corinthians, I was like, okay, okay. If we survive chapter 14, okay, if we survive it, right, if we survive last week, if we survive teaching prophecy and and speaking in tongues and framing all of that rightly and biblically, chapter 15 is coming. And so listen, here it is. The reality is many of you have proclaimed the power of the resurrection out of your mouth, but in terms of the implications of it on your life, Those two things have formed a chasm, and tonight I long to see that chasm bridged by the power of Jesus, all right? So open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. You're like, Mark, you're a little bit fired up. Yeah, I am, because the tomb is empty. Of course I am. Of course I am. I have no other way to be tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, only two chapters left, my friends, and it's still going to take us a good seven months. Here we go. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. The gospel literally means good news. Which you received, and he he says this to Corinth, even though they have portrayed themselves as, as somewhat dicey, okay? Which you have received in which you stand, verse 2. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, if you're just joining us, what we're going to do is break these two verses down piece by piece. Eat them like the feast that they are. The first word I'm drawn to is the word remind. Do you know how powerful in the scripture The word remind is, the word remembrance is, beginning all the way back in Genesis. 
Abraham sets up altars of remembrance so when he makes his way back through a village or a town, he can remember what God has done. Now, the issue for you and I is we are inundated with notifications and reminders. Come on. Uh, my most recent reminder, next slide, is this. I, I get this reminder every day, and I keep saying later. Anybody else? I don't have enough space on my phone, right? So it, it, it's inevitably, it's like, it's like Apple's mad at me, you know? I'm like, listen, I will download it eventually. Just leave me alone, you know? And, and I wish they just, I wish they had a, a button on there, like never ever contact me again, Apple, right? But this notification pops up. And here's what starts happening is, I read it the first time. Like it drew my attention the first time. The second time, you know, I, I was making sure that was the same thing. It wasn't telling me my phone was going to self-destruct or anything. So I gave it a glance. Third, fourth, fifth, this thing's been coming up for months. Now I don't even read it. I pay no attention. I, I, I just look at it so because it's on my screen and, I, and I, I'm aiming for later because I can now do it, you know, somewhat inconspicuously without even looking at it. Your lives are, my life is inundated with notifications and dings and texts and, and a constant barrage of remember this, remember this, remember this. I'm wondering though, in the barrage of notifications, that the sheer power of being reminded of the greatness of the gospel has become just like one of these, these ancient notifications that you wish were gone. In other words, you're like, yeah, yeah, I understand all that. Right? Like, I learned that when I was a kid, man. I know the gospel. I, I know the good news. I, I know what it means. I know what it says. And so instead of marveling again in the remembrance of it, you find yourself literally just passing on by. But what I found, and maybe this is you as well, listen, every morning that begins with the remembrance of the power of the gospel is a great morning indeed. You know what I'm saying? I mean, every morning that I wake up and I start thinking about who I was, what Christ has done, and now who I am because of him, oh my goodness, it puts the day in perspective. You see, when the reminder of the gospel becomes the focal point of our entire existence, the remembrance of who Christ is and what he's done. I'm telling you right now, do you understand the unbelievable power of that? Okay, so here's what verse 1 says again. Now I would remind you, brothers, you've heard this, but listen, don't, don't let this just pass you by like some notification on a scroll. I'm trying to put that in context there, right? Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news I preached to you, which you received, in which you what? In which you stand. In which you stand boldly. In which you stand passionately. In which you stand aggressively, we could say. Really cool beginning of verse 2. And by which, this gospel, you are being saved. I want to make sure we're all on the same page with this. I want to make no assumptions. In Christ, the good news that we're about to hear about tonight... The power of that is that every single one of us in Christ can be and through Christ will be saved. Uh, it sounds like, you know, a medical hospital term. It, it sounds like, uh, you know, someone kind of throwing uh, uh, someone a, a lifeline. But literally when he's reminding them of this, he's saying, you once were lost, 
You once were dead in your trespasses, but God now who has been rich in mercy has offered you a way out of yourself. Now death will not be your end. Life in Christ is yours eternally. That's what we're saved from, my friends. So again, it's another one of those moments, right, where I feel like we could just say, hey, in Christ you're saved. And then people in the room would just start bouncing off the walls. They would be dancing in the aisles. Hallelujahs shouted out from the back. But here's what we've learned to do. We've learned to be saved with a seatbelt on. Oh yeah, we're saved from death. You know, and we're gonna, we're gonna share that and express that in a very controlled manner. Because ultimately, going from death to life it isn't that big of a deal. Are you kidding me? Now, I'm not saying it has to look like I prescribe passion to be or this extrovert down the street or this person over here. I'm not saying that. But my, my friends, my brothers and sisters, does the reality of how the gospel has saved you make your heart just leap out of your chest a little bit? I'm not saying you got to shout it from a rooftop right now in some like crazy manner, but at the same time, why not? We've learned to be saved with the seatbelt on. I'm asking you tonight to take the seatbelt off. He goes on, if, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in, what's the word there? Vain. Oh, you know what word ends uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 15? You guys know what word? Take a guess, come on. Vain, that's right. Okay, scholars, right? So it ends the chapter. The Greek word is IK. And what it means is fruitless. Oh, we could almost say it this way like worthless, a lack of. So, what Paul is saying is if you hold fast to the word unless you believed it in a fruitless way. Well, you know who else believed the gospel in a fruitless way? Can I show you? Check out James. Look at this. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The demons have a belief in Christ in vain. Oh, they believe. They know he is real, but their belief is fruitless. It hasn't changed their perspective or their life. They're simply claiming the reality, which is, for some of you, very, very true, and was Paul's warning. It will save you if that belief isn't fruitless, if it's not worthless. And now some of the greatest rhetoric of all of Paul's letters. You guys ready? You guys ready? Come on. You guys ready? Here we go. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of, I just want to make sure we, we all see this, as of what? First importance. Okay, before we take one step further. Whatever he's getting ready to say has first importance. Can we agree? And I'm going to guarantee you right now, because I've studied it at great length, and you can already read ahead, that what is of first importance is not the list that some of us have built in our minds about what it looks like to believe and follow Christ. Oh, if If you have this gift, then that's of first importance. If you can communicate in this way, then that's of first importance. If if you can follow all the rules and the regulations, 
in the right and proper singing kumbaya kind of way, that's of first importance. That is not what Paul says. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. Come on. Paul is saying, listen, you have to see this. I'm not just preaching or sharing at you. This is something that has changed me. This is something that I have received as well. That Christ died for our, what's the word? For our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That somehow, God in his sovereign plan, which makes absolute no sense to any of us, builds and develops this plan of redemption that would include the self-sacrifice of his son. And that somehow in the sacrifice of his son, who is also God, that in that death, there would be forgiveness of our what? Come on. Of our sins. Now I want to take this one step further in Galatians 1. Beautiful text here. Check this out. Here's what Paul writes. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave what? You see, people think when they read the Bible that Jesus was a convicted felon who was a product of the system, who of the Romans uh, determined with the Jewish council that somehow he needed to be executed. But let me clear up for everybody here tonight, Jesus gave himself up. Do you remember the encounter that he has with Pilate, right? And Pilate essentially says, brother, dude, okay, in the Greek maybe, right? He's like, listen, man. Like, do, do you know I can release you? Like, let, let's, let's figure this thing out, okay, in so many words. And Jesus says, you only have authority that's been given to you. Step back, okay. Jesus is offering himself up. Oh, yes, the, the Romans and the Jewish council became the means by which God unfolded his plan, but his plan from the beginning would be that the death of a son would mean the forgiveness of our sins. These transgressions that every single one of us are born with and have, in fact, separated us from a relationship with God. So here's what he says. Who gave himself for our sins to, what's the word? Come on. Anytime I I hear the word deliver, uh, I instantly think of the delivery room, okay? Okay. Uh, Any other mothers and dads here? Like, is that what you think of? Okay. I don't think of the word deliver very often, right? But when I do think about it, I I, I think about the, the delivery room. I think about what it represents. Well, in general, to to deliver something is is to is to bring it to light, is to all of a sudden reveal it. Or is all of a sudden to pull out of what was to give something a, we could even say, a new understanding or present it in a new light. And so what Jesus has done is he has delivered us from the present evil age according to the will of God 
and Father. In other words, it is God's will that we would be delivered from our sin. Come on. It is in his love and grace that we would be delivered. We would be taken out of the pit of hatred. And we would be given new life to whom be the glory forever and ever. Beautiful language, okay? Let's keep looking here in, uh, in, in verse 3. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He fulfilled the prophetic words. That he was, what, what does verse 4 say? That he was what? Buried. Now, this is often skipped over. Uh, I want to make sure we're all on the same page here. Jesus wasn't playing hide-and-go-seek, okay? You guys understand what I'm saying? So he doesn't, like, fake his death on the cross because he's Jesus and is a great actor. Okay, and he's like, oh, this hurts, right? And, you know, every time they nail or every time they scourge or every time they poke, he, he winces, It's not a God-man on the cross who is faking it. Please hear this. He is taking on, which you will never understand, I will never comprehend, the full wrath of God against sin. He's taking it on. So if the physical pain wasn't heavy enough, which crucifixion was a crazy, unbelievable, very difficult and heinous way to be killed... If the physicality wasn't heavy enough, I'm telling you, what Jesus bore in the spiritual as he took on the wrath, the full wrath of God, he was not acting, he was taking it on, and a real God-man who had given himself up in sacrifice was put in a tomb dead. He wasn't playing hide-and-go-seek. Listen, the... The, the stone didn't roll up and then Jesus like popped up like, woo! Man, I had to act that, like I had to carry that cross through the whole thing. And, can, you know, and then he, he and the Trinity are kind of like wrapping it up in there. It did not happen. A dead body of the God-man Jesus was put in a tomb. He was buried, my friend. This is a huge quintessential piece to the resurrection if he's not buried if he's acting then there is no death and there is no life but if he hasn't died and if he hasn't resurrected then death no longer has a sting then all of a sudden that truth and reality is gone he was buried and the scripture says he was buried and he was buried and then what uh, the middle verse 4 says and honestly, listen, here, here's kind of what I pictured in my mind. And it's not going to happen because then all of us would just feel like we're faking it. But I pictured in my mind that we would get to this place and we would say these next words that he was raised on the third day. And instead of thinking of, uh, you know, a CCM band from the 90s, like all of you all of a sudden would just erupt. Listen, can I ask it this way? Isn't there a little bit in you that longs for that? Like just, I mean, somewhere deep inside where the, the body, the group of people that you love and, and that you're enjoying journeying with, the family that God's given us here, that, man, we could just read, and he was raised from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. And all of a sudden, 
we could not silence, could not silence the exuberation that was pouring out of our hearts. I'm just asking, is there something in you that just longs for that a little bit? Listen, let's, let's say it right now. We would all be weirded out a little bit to be like, whoa, 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 put the seatbelt back on, bro, right? Weren't you here last week? Women be silent, right? No, 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 don't take that out of context, okay? Right? Don't take that out of context. But, but isn't, there's something in me. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out. Here's what I'm trying to figure out. I'm just going to be really vulnerable. I'm trying to figure out if that's wrong of me to long for that. Where we could just say, could just sing, and he was raised. And pandemonium would happen in this place. On days where it's not Easter. On days where it's not the Christian 4th of July. Here's what I picture happening. This is being read out of chapter 14. So the church in Corinth has just heard about prophecy, tongues, okay, the, the injunction on uh, the, the, the collaboration, rather, of, of men and women in the home and how that works. And then all of a sudden, very quickly, Paul changes his tone to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And I have to imagine... Because these people were hearing some heavy teaching that all of a sudden they got on the edge of their seat a little bit. They're like, you know what? I'm tired of sitting back. I'm tired of wearing my seatbelt. I'm tired of, of acting in the way that everyone thinks that I should. God, plant in me, plant in us a genuine passion. So the, the scripture says that my friends, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. He told the disciples it would happen. Mentioned it a few different times in the gospels that he would die, be, take on tremendous suffering and then be raised. And I know uh, what culture is saying. I know the truth. Um, that they believe that it's a fictional, fairy tale, hope for the best ending to the story, to give Christians some sort of thing to hope on as they await their own death. Many of your friends believe that. Many of your family members believe that. Hey, that's nice. It's good for you Christians. That way you guys can, you know, kind of have hope until you die and then land six feet under. Have we given them any reason to doubt it? What I'm saying is, have we, the believers in the resurrection, given the world any reason to doubt their doubts? I'm wondering, do they ever look at us and because of what we've just read, think, man, those people, they really, really believe that Jesus is alive and not just on like, you know, fluorescent Christian holidays, right? Like they, they actually believe, have we given the world a reason to doubt their doubts? Don't you pray it be so? Don't you pray that every day that that non-believer wakes up and says, Jesus is a fairy tale, that we are putting doubts in their mind to that thing that they believe? Whoa, 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 maybe, maybe he is alive. Those people, have, man, they have a hope that seems unwavering. It's as if they're truly convinced 
that Jesus walked out of a tomb. Why? Because it's either nothing or everything. They're, they're really bought in. Let me just ask you this personally, as I've wrestled with this myself. Just today, just today, has your life been lived in the reality and the truth of an empty tomb or a God that finds himself still dead? Listen, listen, I know the burdens are many. Come on, come on. I know the hurts are great. I've got them as well. I'm wrestling with them myself. I I know all of the things that can easily confuse and grab our attention. I understand. But if all of those things become the means of our life, then haven't we taken the resurrection and put it on the side? If the loss of job wins, if the financial chaos wins, if the broken relationship distorts, if tragedy brings us to this place of complete and utter despair, then haven't we then taken the resurrection and put it on the side table and and go and reach for it every once in a while? You see what I'm saying? See, we're the ones that get to put doubts in the doubter's mind. We're the ones that in tragedy get to say, yes, this hurts and we will hurt with you and we will wrap you with arms of love. But let me tell you something, he's alive. Like the tomb, the tomb is empty. And if that is true, then I know cancer is horrible, but uh, cancer doesn't defeat a resurrection. I just want to make sure we're together. Cancer, divorce, that broken relationship that has brought tremendous strife, the thing right now that is causing you so much stress, none of it will ever conquer and defeat an empty tomb, ever. I know it seems like it right now. And I know, and in all grace and love, please hear this. I know some of you feel very defeated. But what if your defeat was based on your feelings and not the truth? What if you were feeling defeated only because your emotions were taking you, your flesh was taking you, the enemy was taking you to defeat, where if all of a sudden just right now, You were hit again with the truth that in Christ Jesus there is victory. Then what if all of a sudden your perspective would change? I'm not saying that it just wipes away the hurt, but it puts them in the right perspective. We get the privilege, the joy, as ministers of reconciliation to show the world in every situation and in every word and in every deed that our king is not in a tomb. And the implications of that will never stop. I love Paul says that it happens in accordance with the scriptures. This was prophesied. And then what happens in verse 5 to 7 is Paul goes on to do a little proof texting. Okay, look what he does in verse 5. And then he, and then he appeared to Cephas, to Peter. He showed himself. And then to the twelve. Listen, no one was in the, in the empty tomb when it happened, which would be super epic. Okay? The moment when all of a sudden Jesus resurrects. 
Okay, Peter wasn't there. There were folks that were there soon after. Women by one gospel, Peter and John by another. But he eventually shows himself to Cephas. Could you imagine Peter in that moment? Could you imagine the disciples, many of which had run from, uh, had run from the cross because they were scared to death because they thought they were next. And then all of a sudden, they see Jesus. Listen, even at that point, the scripture says some doubted, some were questioning, some were wondering. He shows himself to the 12. Then, uh, verse 6, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. We don't have a good gospel account of this in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but Paul records it. Most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, he's saying, listen, if you need some testimony to the truth and the reality of what Christ has done in his resurrection, talk to those people, because they saw him. Listen, listen, let's just have some fun right now. Eyewitness account is pretty, is pretty powerful, isn't it? Eyewitness account is pretty powerful. Uh, this is best emulated uh, when, you, when you have children, and you guys know I love to talk about my children because it is, you know, it's such a, it's such a great representation of us, ultimately. Uh, but my kids give, uh, give, it seems like, a little bit of sketchy eyewitness account at times. Have you guys ever noticed this? You know what I'm saying? Uh, in other words, they, they try to shade their eyewitness accounts to benefit them. You guys see what I'm saying? You know, so, so when one wants to get out of trouble, well, then all of a sudden his eyewitness account saw that the toy was never there, right? That, that somehow mysteriously, you know, his brother put it there and then smacked him across his face, even though his brother, you know, is bleeding on his cheek. Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's, we at times have a very convenient eyewitness account. I want to make sure you understand one grave difference. Eyewitness accounts to the risen and reigning Lord would have and did lead to living out of that reality which would have then incriminated you completely. The resurrection was the one changing point for these disciples that showed themselves in the Gospels to be morons. And if they become eyewitnesses and tell people and share the truth that he's alive, do you understand that that's, gonna, that's not going to be met with a dozen roses? People aren't then going to be like, oh, you saw the risen Jesus? Sweets, right? Like, like here's some flowers. You're going to be the, the, the lead organizer and the lead. You're going to be like the queen of the parade. I don't even know what that, what do they call that? The person that rides in the Porsche in the parade? Anyway, you guys know what I'm saying, right? No, their eyewitness accounts meant their death because it showed that they believed. So 500 The disciples, Cephas, John, verse 7. Then he appeared to James. Uh, Most believe that this is uh, James, the brother of Jesus, church planter in Jerusalem. Great story. We studied James. Awesome. And then to all the apostles, he says. So he did some showing of himself. We have eyewitness account. We're not going by some people's thoughts of this. He revealed the resurrection to a ton of folks. And verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to what? 
to me. Paul, on his then named Saul, rode to Damascus on his way to kill Christians, persecute Christians. He sees, which would become in so many ways a prerequisite for apostleship, he sees Christ. He sees the Lord call his name Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he falls down in a great light. He's blinded by it. And what Paul makes clear to everybody is I have seen and I know that he's alive. I told you guys, I told you guys this before. Why would anyone die for something you don't believe in? Why would you make something up for some just cause? You wouldn't do it. These disciples wouldn't do it. Paul wouldn't do it. They must have seen. They must have witnessed. And then they go on to die. But Paul making sure that the church in Corinth understands the weight of it, he says this in verse 9, For I am the least of the, uh, the apostles, unworthy, he says, to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Some may say this is being falsely humble. I believe this is Paul revealing the depths of his heart. Listen, I, I'm the least of these. He says in other places in his writings, I'm the greatest sinner. And now it's a treat. Uh, it's a treat for me to get to share this with you uh, because this uh, next verse is in my top five verses in all of Scripture. Here's a verse 10. Next slide. But by the grace of God, Paul says, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Come on now. There are, by my count, four tremendous implications that Paul says in this one verse that teach us the power of the resurrection. He has just shared the gospel, and now he gets to this place where he reveals how impactful the gospel has been to him. Four of them. The first one is this. God's grace defines the identity of believers. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Listen. But by the blank, I am what I am, what would your life say right now? But by the success of my career, I am what I am. But by the indulgence of my abuses, I am what I am. But by my failures, come on, I am what I am. But by how others view me, I am what I am. You fill in the blank. There's a lot of possibilities. But oh, the treasure to say, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I am nothing apart from it, but with it. 
with the grace of God, with the getting what I don't deserve and being known by God and having a relationship with Jesus, that is the thing that defines my being. That is our mantra, my friends. You're not defined by your past. You're not defined by your relationships. You're not defined by your career. You're not defined by your possessions. You're not defined by the litany of sins that you've committed. You are not in Christ defined by any of them. You are defined by the gospel of grace. It has made you a new creation. It's taken the old and breathed newness in you. That's who you are now. All of these things are trying to shade that perspective and trying to say, oh, no, 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 you remember that? No, no, that's still, that still haunts you. That still defines you. Please hear this. No, it does not. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And then he says this crazy truth. Uh, next, the second implication. And his grace toward me was not in vain, says Paul. God's grace produces fruit in believers. Remember when we looked at the word vain earlier? Fruitless. What Paul is saying is, God's grace on me was not fruitless. I haven't taken it for granted. I haven't thrown it in the trash can. Listen, I haven't abused it. Do I fall? Short, yes. Paul makes clear. He has his own sins, his own vices, at times his own comforts. He turns to his struggles, yes. But what he says is that, listen, I have not taken that grace and then made a mockery of the gift that God has given. I didn't wrap up the Christmas tree or the Christmas present because I didn't like it. I open it and I open it again and I don't fake smile acting like I like it more than I do. It has become for me life and it produces fruit then in response to who God is. Could you imagine in the waning days of your life being able to say that? You're laying there on your deathbed and you get the privilege of saying God's grace was not given to me in vain. I cherished it. I longed for it. I knew that it is what defined my identity. Incredible stuff. Number three, how about this? This is huge, huge. Believers, see this, work hard. Not for approval, but because they are approved. Are we together, church? Laziness is not in the scripture. Sitting on your hands, not in the scripture. Paul says, I worked hard. Listen, listen. The word work in, in, in churchianity culture is like a trigger for like anger. Oh, he said work. He must not believe in the gospel. Oh, that dude said the W word, you know, and you're like ready to get your target, practice out, start, start throwing some darts at my face. It's like the one thing, right, that we'll, we'll hang on. No, it's not a works-based righteousness. That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying the opposite of works-based righteousness. He's not saying that I have worked hard so that God approves me. He's saying God has approved of me in Christ, and you know what that has produced in me? A work ethic for him that is built on the reality that I know I have signed up to die. And so when I've signed up to die, that means that I've not signed up for laziness or half-hearted discipleship. I've signed up 
to sacrifice, become a living sacrifice, Pastor Jeff prayed before our gathering. That's what I've signed up for. Isn't this beautiful? Listen, it goes so against much of our culture right now. Listen, you can just kind of do your thing, just kind of coast on through. And I seriously think Paul, in his short stature, would look at us and it just would not compute. Hold on a second. What, you mean you can, you've learned that you can like sit on the Christian bench? That you just come out for the holidays? I think what Paul would say is, there is no bench in Christ. We're all in, all together. Number four is this. God's, God gets the glory for our work. Uh, look what the end of verse 10 says. But the grace of God that is in me. It's not I that is, that is doing the work. It's the grace of God. He is saying, I have worked harder. I've been approved by God. But you know what? It's because of grace. So just at the moment that you think, Paul's asking, oh, Paul, what you're being, you know, you're kind of putting yourself out there, kind of promoting yourself. Oh, you're such a hard worker, Paul. No, 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 it's not I that's working. It is a gift that God has given me to work hard for his glory. Come on. Insane, beautiful language and truth. Next slide. Let's look at this as we continue on. Verse 11. This is what's going to end our teaching as we move towards some heavy truth here in the end. Whether then it was I or they, the other proclaimers of the gospel or me, it doesn't matter. So we preach and so you believed. This quickly is a reference back to the early parts of uh, 1 Corinthians. Remember when people were you know, committing themselves to a teacher, Apollos and Peter, Paul. Listen, whether it was I or whatever, you've heard, you've heard us preach and so you believe. This is some of the most powerful language in all of 1 Corinthians and all of Paul's writings. But it brings us back to kind of one poignant place. Next slide. Let's just have kind of a heart to heart, right? Again, I'm not asking what you would say. I'm asking what your life reveals. Is the resurrection everything to you? Do you find yourself consistently waking up in the morning just saying, I am so thankful that you've conquered death? Do you find yourself being brought back to it consistently? Do you find yourself when we sing songs like Mighty to Save, all of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness, you're so mighty to save. Or are some of you realizing right now that you've been saying that it's everything at the right times and the right moment, you communicate that the resurrection is your only saving grace. But in reality, what your life is showing is actually, it, it means nothing. It's convenient. It's nice. Let's say it this way. Next slide. What has greater power in your life right now? Your sin or the resurrection.
It's a heavy question, isn't it? What right now are you experiencing the power of? The power of lust, deceit, envy, slander, hypocrisy, gossip, judgment. Those very powerful things or in light of some of those very powerful things, are you experiencing what the resurrection has done to those things? Yes, gossip may rear its ugly head in the form of temptation and even at times an indulgence, but you find yourself being gripped by what the resurrection has provided you in spite of that sin. Listen, you find yourself not heaped under massive amounts of condemnation tonight, though you're battling, though you're in a massive war, flesh versus spirit. You find yourself claiming victory in how God is sanctifying you. You're watching progress. You're seeing growth. I'm asking you very boldly what tonight has the most power in your life. One promises ultimate power and one actually has it. And so those right now that feel so heavily under the weight of your sin, you feel like there's no escape. You're like looking around for the light at the end of the tunnel and you can't find it. To you, to the heavy laden, to the burdened, let me make one final statement. Because he is alive, grace is alive. Now, right in this very second, Maybe you have never experienced the Philippians 3 power of his resurrection. Maybe you've never encountered it. Maybe it's never really found entrance in your life. Maybe even for you, it was a nice thing to say, a pleasant thing to celebrate every once in a while. But maybe all of a sudden right now, you're like, oh my goodness. The power of the resurrection is, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. But by the grace of God, I I work hard and die to myself for his glory. But by the grace of God, I, I extend love to my enemies. By the grace of God, I can see gossip being killed in my life. But by the grace of God, I watch in spite of my failures, God still in Christ approve of me. He's alive and grace is alive. Receive it right now. That is the power of the resurrection. That's what Paul had to remind the church in Corinth of, and that is what we must be reminded of now. Why? Because we'll walk out of those doors. And the world is going to be looking at us. And they are going to be asking in their minds, is he alive or is he not? And you and I get to show a lost and dying world in every second of every day. Our king is not dead. He is so unbelievably alive 
And because of his life, my life will never be the same and yours can never be the same too. Let's stand together, come on. All right. I want to pray something in boldness right now. Is that cool? This is going to be scary. And I don't think there's a prescribed way that we even encounter it or experience it. I don't think it looks like something that we would expect. But what if we prayed right now that collectively we encountered the power of the resurrection right now? What if we prayed that? What if God was gracious enough right now to answer that prayer and to give us a glimpse collectively right now together what freedom is like and feels like and can worship in and, and what, what freedom of sin and what the noose being gone and, and what, what this unbelievable exuberation in the resurrection, like all of those things. What if right now he just said, now, my brothers and sisters, my sons and daughters, you get to experience the power of my life. Can we pray for that in boldness? And again, I, I think the, the expectations, the assumptions of what that would look like or be like, let's just, let's just rid of all of that. And let's pray in faith right now to a God who hears and, and who can answer and say, God, just do what you want right now, but we long to know you and the power of your resurrection, all right? So listen, this may be weird too for some of you, but if you're here with family or friends, could you just grab hands, okay, with those family or friends that are next to you, Okay. No need to go across the aisles or anything. Just, just grab those hands. Let's pray in power right now. Come on. So, Father, please show us. I pray that you confront us. I pray that there would be nothing, God, that would detour us from right now encountering the power of your life. Bring it, God. Shower us in grace. We confess that many of us have been underneath the power of our sin for years and we're tired of it. I pray right now that we would see how much greater your resurrection power is. For those that are burdened right now with sickness, I pray that you would show them the power of your resurrection. For those right now that are burdened by broken relationships, I pray that you show the power of your resurrection. For those that are burdened by financial strife, God, right now in this moment, show them the power of your resurrection. For those, God, that are so confused, that have hurts so deep from the past, right now, God, please show them the power of your resurrection. Father, please, collectively, we pray that we would have assurance of your life like we have never, ever been confronted with before. Come now.